Hello and welcome to episode 394 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you back in Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. I'm looking this up. It's the Chad Brown edition. Is that right? That sounds right. There we go. Definitely number 94. Uh, I feel like there may have been some other defensive linemen. I, I really do need to remember to just open this up every time before the podcast. He's the only player I have down for this week. Apparently that's so. It's the Chad Brown edition. It's also the 1994 edition of the Pelton cast. I mean, I was thinking last week when we got to 93, that was the start of Let's Remember Some Years. Now, because of the nature of the Pelton cast schedule, uh-huh. the time has shifted much forward from when we did Let's Remember Some Years, which not to put too fine a point on it, was 200 episodes ago. Of when we started? Yeah. Wait, it was, really? It was a 293. It was episode 193. That's when we started Let's Remember Some Years? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, it was wow. 2020. So we're coming up on four years from it. That's kind of a lot of episodes. It is. So it's also the 1994 episode, though, because the quality, I will say that things started going well for the Mariners in 1994 a little bit, a little bit. The quality of the professional sports franchises in Seattle feels like it is 1994 again. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, 1994, the Mariners were not very good. It was only like the last two weeks of the season that they started playing well. And that was after they were unable to play any home game <laughs> during their... Uh, they but they a... did win the World Series in 1994. Oh, that is a good point. I have yeah. forgotten about I that. I think you're forgetting about how good they played in 1994. Much like the Huskies' victory over Miami in the 1991 National Championship game, the original college mm-hmm. football playoff is described in Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. That 1994 World Series, uh, of course, taking place, narrated by Dave Niehaus uh-huh. on Cairo 710. Great athletic feature, feature on The Athletic by Jason Jenks about that a few years ago, tracking that down. That particular... Fake broadcast? Yeah. There we go. Mariners beat the Expos. Oh, yeah. They I mean, had to play the Spos. The Pelton cast does quibble with the fact that Rich Averill committed a crucial error in that, <laughs> in that fake game. An official quibble between the, to be presented from the Pelton cast about a fake error in a fake baseball game where a team that no longer exists played. Get this. You will not believe this. The most shocking part of the situation, the Seattle Mariners in the World Series. I mean, it still hasn't happened. It's almost three decades later. The team that the Montreal Expos was has won a World Series, at least played in a World Series. They won. The Mariners have not. Well, okay. I guess that's the tone for the pro sports section of this week's podcast. But let me tell you, the college sports section of this week's podcast is riding high. There we go. It's, It's riding so high. It's receiving votes. You would think that this was episode 2007 because I'm going back to college for this one. Wow. All right, well, should we get into our, our toasts then? Because Absolutely, they, we should. They have a UW football theme with end-of-season awards. We start with congratulations to Michael Penix Jr., who became the first Husky to ever win the Maxwell Award as National Player of the Year before finishing second in Heisman voting behind winner Jaden Daniels. As we talked about last week, the highest finish ever for a UW player in Heisman voting. Wow. You sent me last week. I think we kind of knew heading into this, you'd seen the betting markets that this was probably Jaden Daniels Heisman to win. But at the same time, Michael Penix finishing second ahead of an Oregon quarterback named Bo Nix. A quarterback from where? Oregon! 
is still it was a monster season. Also, somehow Bones. the all Pac-12 first team quarterback is. We'll get to it in a second. And who oh, Bonix? Yeah. Michael Penix Jr. won the Maxwell Award as National Player of the Year. Didn't make all-conference first team. That's got to be a first. That has to have never happened before. I can't imagine that has happened. That is actually kind of incredible. Uh, But as I have told you, they want to make a Bonix happen. Uh, (laughs) Apparently they've been strictly Oregon State and Washington State since they now control the Pac-12. This was such an incredible season for Michael Penix. The award season, we'll, we'll talk about that more. Like, winning the Heisman would have been amazing. First Heisman Trophy winner in UW history would have been incredible. That is not what he came back for. Winning the Heisman was part of it, but that wasn't it. There is unfinished business that is going to be finished in a couple of weeks here. So, I, I think this this was would have been cherry on top, but Jane Daniels can be so happy with his three-loss Heisman. Michael Penix is undefeated, and that's what matters. All right, congrats to Kaylin DeBoer, named Home Depot National Coach of there the Year. There we go. And Pac-12 Coach of the Year. That, that one the Huskies actually got in the conference. Uh, four Huskies made the all-Pac-12 first team. Troy Fahutano, Roma Dunze, Braylon Trice, Nedfuan, Ulafoshio. In addition to Penix, there were four total on the second team. Dylan Johnson, Parker Brailsford, and Jabbar Muhammad, the others. I think especially awesome to see Dylan Johnson on there as well. Yeah, started the season slow, transferred into UW. Obviously, uh, had his job kind of open up because of the Cameron Davis injury early on. Dylan Johnson doing such incredible things at the end of the season, being I believe the only 100-yard rusher against Oregon twice. Only so, running back Tyler Shuck, a quarterback who okay, there we transferred go. from Texas Tech after previously transferring from Oregon, also got them for 100. I forget where he's headed, but he's going to his third school. But the, how about the only Pac-12 running back? The only but, Pac-12 but player. Tyler Shook isn't a running back. He's a quarterback. I know, I He's know. the only running back. Uh, but Dil- Dylan Johnson and the season that he put together at UW was such an incredible season. And to have him be kind of the missing piece for this team. And again, I mean, we talked about it. Like the plays that he made in that Pac-12 championship game, being a dog for life, Right. I mean, you can say the same about Jabbar Muhammad, another transfer. In his case, not necessarily as slow a start as with Dylan Johnson, who was coming back from an injury. But he, Where did Jabbar Muhammad come from? I believe Oklahoma State. Is he done? Is he a senior? I think he has a year of eligibility left, but his draft stock's looking pretty good right okay. now. Okay, damn. I mean, him in particular, the so Oregon nice State So Jabbar Muhammad back. I, I agree. So both of those guys, look, the uh, importance of transfers in the modern day and age in college football. Uh, well, I mean, second on that list to, to Michael Penix Jr. is a transfer as well, but, uh, uh, you know, certainly helped complete the this roster. All right, congrats to Adunze, who made the All- AP All-American first team with Penix on the second team. Fautanu, Trice, and Yulafoshio were all on the AP All-America third team. And it's kind of incredible, Roma Adunze. Despite being on the AP All-American first team, I assume it was two receivers, Marvin Harrison Jr. and Roma Dunze, right? Probably. With, well, still being snubbed somehow in the Heisman. When they released the full Heisman voting, I understand that people are going to vote for Roma Dunze, just voted for Penix. But, like, to not have running backs? Like, Roma Dunze in the season that he put together, he should have been six in the Heisman or something like that. I thought it was personally offensive that Roma Dunze was not on the list. Didn't get votes at all. He didn't get a single vote. I, I don't know if he didn't get a single vote, but he was not in the top 10. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. 
at some point the the Heisman's there, a little different because it's well, it's like NFL MVP where you won't do you vote for first, second? Yeah, I guess you do vote for first, second, and third. But there is no but Michael Penix Jr. without Roma Dunze. Once you get outside of like the top five or six, I think the voting totals stop mattering, in my opinion. I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't know if I think it matters. but it's, it's just like random votes. For the Missouri running back. Right. Yeah. All right, congrats to AFC Offensive Player of the Week. This there goes back we go. Jake Browning put together another monster performance before leaving due to injury on Sunday. Jake Browning did nothing wrong. He's now... Uh, I saw a headline because I was looking for information on whether he's healthy this week before I was going to make my picks on ESPN. Uh, is he the new Brock Purdy? Wow. Which, no, because he doesn't get to play against the Seahawks defense. He's not a system quarterback. <laughs> he did. Brock Purdy is not a system quarterback. Look, I've seen some stats. Uh, I've seen some stats, too. <laughs> look, Jake Browning just does it outside of having the amazing system. And, and, and look, he has no receiver skill with the Bengals or whatever. Also, it's apparently, all Jake Browning. just throwing tons of screen passes that go for a, a long ways, as I understand it. Uh, lastly, on the congratulations front this week in the toast, congrats to Sammy Whitcomb in the storm and her wife, Kate, on welcoming their second child, Reef Augie Whitcomb. Also a dog, right? What? Sammy Whitcomb? They welcomed a dog? Didn't she go to UW? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. This <laughs> yeah. is all UW. It is. It there is. We I hadn't go. thought about that. Stop wow. the count. <laughs> Let's just have a, a all college podcast. Well, we'll do count. we need to talk about professional sports? I think I think we kind of do need to talk about professional sports. Sometimes you gotta you gotta see the <sighs> darkness. <laughs> I, I learned from someone I know. Uh also, sticking with the dog theme, if you haven't already listened to this week's episode of Talking Taco Time featuring UW alum Luke Burbank, who made a strong case for permanent fifth talking taco time co-host status with his with his appearance i would say i mean uw football kind of cleaned up with regards to awards they were undefeated they, they <laughs> and could could have done even better but keelan DeBoer being coach of the year is i mean it's a demonstration of what he has done at uw and i don't do you know who finished second in this i don't since coming here, like he has taken a program that obviously was in a pretty good position overall, but to so quickly go from where this program was two years ago to only having lost two games since Kalen DeBoer stepped foot on campus is, I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Hmm. Not seeing any voting breakdowns here, but uh, maybe I will have to search a little Every bit. Every single vote went to Kalen DeBoer. <laughs> All right, with that, should we get into professional sports in Seattle? Sure. I assume you don't have a take on this one. On baseball? Yeah. I didn't I didn't put down an official take, no. On Shohei Otani signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers for what was originally reported as a 10-year, $700 million deal. That is the total on-paper value of the deal. But we subsequently learned from my ESPN colleague Jeff Passan that uh, it is an unorthodox structure where Shohei Otani will make $2 million a year for the 10 years he is under contract to the Los Angeles Dodgers and then $68 million a year for the subsequent 10 years. $680 million out of the $700 million deferred based on the uh, rate of interest that MLB and the Players Association are using, this therefore comes out, according to the competitive balance tax, is a 10-year $460 million contract with a $46 million per year 
value hit on the competitive balance tax. I mean, we we didn't think Shohei was signing with the Mariners. Like it turns out that the Mariners just made the decision to close the team shop on a Saturday during Christmas season. <laughs> no wonder the team is struggling financially. <laughs> oh no. How many people do we actually think are going to the team shop on a random Saturday? I don't know. They still have the one by uh by I, I don't know. I'm blanking. By Pi- not by Pioneer Square. The, the stadium is near Pioneer Square. Pike near Place Westlake. Market or Westlake? I, yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure that they... That's in a horrible place, though. Like, foot traffic-wise. I have no idea why that store is there. But the one like that's by the Moore Theater? Yeah, it was in kind of like the triangle block. There, yeah, no, nobody's going to that. I can tell you who does have the numbers of how many people are going to the team store on that Saturday, and it's the Seattle Mariners. And I can tell you it's not many people who are excited about the Seattle Mariners. Well, the, the amount this of point. Mariners gear that is being uh, uh, gifted this season. Last year it was tons, right? I'm sure that there's so much Mariners gear last Christmas. This year it is all Husky gear. UW is cleaning up with regards to the merch right now. The Mariners, not so much. I have seen traveling to and from Seattle recently so much more Husky gear than ever before. It turns out when you're winning... People like your team. Weird. Who would have seen that coming? I mean, obviously, I traveled to L.A. for the UW game. It was not surprising. There was a lot of purple on that flight. But uh, there was a guy in a Michael Penix Jr. jersey on my flight home from Las Vegas. And I made the mistake that many other people presumably made about the Husky hoodie that I was wearing that day. Because the Vikings were playing in Las Vegas against the Raiders. And so the purple just made me look like I was a Vikings fan. And I was like, wow, that's weird. The game's still going on. The Vikings, the Raiders still haven't scored. Why is this Vikings fan at the airport? And it was only then that I realized it was a Penix jersey. Oh. Uh, the, I mean, the Husky football, is, they're the, the team in Seattle right now. They are the number one team in Seattle. They're that the top correct. dog. But, like... I think this contract and the deal with the Dodgers shows that baseball players, when choosing teams to play with in free agency, like to be with teams that have a chance of playing in the playoffs and like to play with other players who are good players at the sport of baseball and a front office that shows a commitment to wanting to win at the sport of baseball more than some sort of tenuous 54% over a decade. Like Shohei's deal, both the reason that he is choosing to play with the Dodgers is I'm sure there are a number of reasons, right? He seems probably likes living in LA and would rather live, play for the Dodgers than the Angels. I'm sure that it is nice for him that the many reporters from Japan who have moved to LA to cover Shohei Otani don't have to move to a different city or whatever to continue covering him. Especially a like, different country. But at the same time, he structured this deal such that the Dodgers will continue to be financially capable of being relevant for other players and to have a good team. Like, that is the ultimate goal for Shohei, for the Dodgers, is winning baseball games. That's it. And then the profits come after. For the Mariners, like, of course Shohei's not trying to sign here. He knows. He can see what's going on. If the Mariners were a different team with a different ownership group and a different approach to the Major League roster at this point, I think Shohei could have reasonably signed here. It's not like, we're not Kansas City or something. You know, yeah, I did see a headline earlier that was like fans of every team hoped that in or everywhere hoped that Shohei would sign with their team. And I was like, really? Were Royals fans holding out hope? <laughs> were they the flight Royals. tracking from Anaheim to Kansas City? I don't think so. There were only a small handful of teams that could have reasonably signed Shohei. And I think the Mariners 
not taking out the Mariners-ness of it all. Who the Mariners are as an organization on a greater scale than their current owner, I think, could have signed Shohei Otani. The location of the city, the market size, everything like that. The team, the history of Japanese players. But the current ownership group precluded them from even being in the realistic conversation with Shohei Otani. And I think that's the thing that we should be frustrated about more than anything else. But beyond that, it was he signed with the Dodgers, and it wasn't like we were holding our breath. No. I think the only people who reasonably were upset were probably Giants fans and Blue Jays fans, who and maybe Angels fans, who felt like they actually had a chance of signing Shohei. We didn't think that there was a chance of signing Shohei at this point. Like, at some point, the the thousands and thousands of words about how the Mariners were not going to sign Shohei, we just had to believe those. There was never one time where it's like, well, maybe... I mean, I don't know that we're ever going to get a full accounting of to what degree the Mariners were actually considered at all, unless Shohei Otani actually says it himself. I mean, I don't think the organization is going to be out there talking about it. Look, for all we know, they were one of the three finalists or whatever the number was, and they just kept it very quiet because of the fact that that's what Shohei Otani clearly wanted throughout this entire process. I, I'm just not even sure it matters. No, it doesn't matter. He's not here. I, I do have to say, and you know how much this pains me, you were right. You said the Dodgers all along. If I go back and listen to last year's bold predictions, I bet you're going to say the Dodgers. Did we talk about that on the bold predictions last year? Well, we'll get to it. Okay. You're in Seattle Sports Year Interview Podcast coming soon. The bigger issue is not Shohei Otani. It's that a week has passed now. We were more or less promised that the payroll would be higher than it was last year. And a week has passed, and there doesn't seem to be much progress. There are not a lot of players off the market. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that necessarily means anything. This isn't like, you know, the this isn't like NBA free agency in any way. It's not like when LeBron signed with Cleveland on July 8th and like the rest of the legal had deals within 48 hours. I was a little surprised that that didn't happen. So I guess we I mean, can still... I mean, like these contracts sometimes take until February. We can still have an incomplete on this Mariners offseason. I do think we the, still do have an incomplete on this Mariners offseason. The goodwill from the front office. I know that there there is a story today about how the Mariners need to be more transparent about their approach. And to me, the Mariners have been so extraordinarily transparent about their approach. <laughs> they have told us again. They've told us all along exactly how they are approaching this. They told us last summer that they are a small market team. They told fans to basically temper their expectations for what to expect. They told us this year that, wait, what, what were some, the, the 54% quote, right? That they're not interested in basically trying to build up and win a World Series right now. The Mariners are not doing that. I mean, at what this they've point. said is they're not interested in trying to win a World Series at the expense of maintaining a window of championship contention. And, that's that's where they're at right now. But realistically, unless something changes soon, this is not a major league baseball club roster with the with subtractions that have happened so far. It's not a major like, league outfield. I, I don't. I think it's not a major league roster. Outfield's like all. It's a huge part of the of the ballpark. I, I mean, I don't know if we're just going strictly by the geography of it. It's not Geographically like, it's, speaking, it's not like left field is a more important position than shortstop because you co- literally cover more of the field. It's not a major league first base. It's not a major league right field. It's not a major league left field. I'm no. skeptical about third base. They had a breakout season at shortstop. Like, I, I, I think, what positions? They're counting on Josh Rojas. Like, at what position outside? It's it's Julio Rodriguez, 
J.P. Crawford, who a year ago we wouldn't have minded not being on the team, and Cal Rowley. I mean, I think they're I think they're going to stick with Ty France, and that maybe transitions us to our next topic. Because the Mariners haven't had any players in the past week, but they have added to the coaching staff. There in we the go. Past week. That's going to solve everything. No, I'm actually like legit kind of kind of intrigued by this. Uh, the Mariners added Brant Brown is their offensive coordinator, and Tommy Joseph is assistant coach, hitting coach, to returning hitting coach Jarrett DeHart, which is also the first time I learned that the Mariners hitting coach. Yeah, no idea. DeHart. Uh, Brant Brown, you may recall, because he played during the Pelton cast sweet spot of paying attention in the, the late 90s and early 2000s. Familiar. He played five MLB seasons, primarily with the Cubs. He served as a hitting strategist for the notoriously development-focused Dodgers before joining the Marlins as their hitting coach last year. Miami went from the third highest strikeout rate in the NL during 2022 at 24% to 21%, which ranked fifth lowest last year. And all-star Jorge Soler was the big success story, cutting his strikeout rate from 29% to 24% and boosting his batting average from 207 to 250 without sacrificing power while hitting 36 home runs. Soler is now a free agent, so certainly Why a possibility. Why was Brent Brown a free agent, though? If, if Brent Brown is so valuable... Why is he coming to the Mariners as offensive coordinator? I mean, he wasn't the hitting coach for the Dodgers previously. I think he probably was the number two in that organization. So Miami offered him a promotion, presumably. But, but so Miami is not. My, like, I know that everyone thinks that the Mariners spend like only slightly more than Oakland and Tampa Bay, but they spend a lot more than Miami, too. I, uh, Sure. If if we are talking about Brant Brown at this point during the season, I will be very impressed. This feels like Casey Williams to me. Like, this is an off-season conversation right now. I mean, probably. But, like, again, to your point about the Mariners have told us who they are, the Mariners have told us who they are, and that is fucking obsessed with lowering their strikeout rate at all costs. And i got to tell you, I went in last week thinking I was going to write a take about how the, the line that I had in my head was that they were missing the forest through the... the strikeout trees and then i went and did the research and i was like no actually i think they might be onto something on this one okay so like louis rise his success doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Brant brown he was always playing that style and he was emblematic of the marlins and the success they had last year but solaire is an example of a guy who did change his approach and was more successful as a result of it and it's interesting because i guess they got rid of all the guys that he could do that with here necessarily other than Cal Rally, but I think that I think that's part of their philosophy. I mean, if if that is it, if if the secret sauce to the Mariners and being a playoff team is literally just lowering their strikeouts, then more power to them. I will be surprised if that's the case. If it's gonna be Taylor Taylor Trammell out there and Sam Haggerty and Dominic Canzone, and then this is a playoff caliber team because they're not striking out as much, I will personally be surprised. But I think the most important thing to follow through this offseason is if the team is not going to spend to be competitive. Like, I don't, I honestly don't care about the Xfinity deal or whatever, right? If Comcast put, put the subs onto a higher price tier, like, that's a Mariners problem. You know what I mean? There are teams, that is a bad deal that they had if it was a deal that could have been done. Like, it's, I mean, on, I, it's on them. There might be repercussions because of it. What I would like, say is this is not a Mariners problem. It's a baseball problem. It's just that that is their business ultimately. And the goal for the baseball team and the ownership group and the baseball club is to field a competitive baseball team. 
and to do that in whatever means possible. So if a little bit of money is coming away here, you have to accept the fact that this is a billion dollar corporation that you're running. I'm sure that John Stanton's value on this team has appreciated so significantly oh, of course. Uh, for this club that maybe they should be willing to spend a little bit more. Like, I don't give a shit about the Xfinity thing. And if we're worried about that, about the, the net profits for billionaires, like that's, it's not, it's I mean, not a reasonable I, thing to be concerned with right now. It's just John Stanton telling us, I need to make more from this or I can't lose this money. My investment hasn't appreciated enough. That's, that's not a good reason. It's a reason, but it's not a good reason to not be a competitive baseball team. I mean, team. worried about it is the wrong way to put it. Nobody is crying any tears for John Stanton. Let's be clear about that. But if you're going to understand how your major league team is going to operate, that's a factor in it. Like... Look, you can wish it to be so different. That's not going to change anything. But the, th the power that we have, but what you're talking about here ultimately is basically John Stanton has this decision to lower the net profits slightly to commit toward trying to win. And the power that we have as fans is complaining on the internet, maybe, but... I mean, that's not going to do any good. I guarantee it. Listen... More if, than if complaining. That, if that did any good, the, the, the world of sports would look a lot different than it does. <laughs> Media guys would never be employed. Um, but uh, more than let's, complaints. Let's distinguish between reasonable complaints. I, I understand. And unreasonable <laughs> complaints here. But what I'm saying. Also, I would never be employed for the record. If we're talking yes, about. No. Let me tell you, I published my list of all stars earlier this week. There's been a lot of people saying I should have been fired, should be fired since then. Who's the most questionable one? Uh, well, people are very upset that Jason Tatum wasn't a starter in the East because it makes a difference who starts and comes off the bench in this fake all-star team that is not actually Jason reflective Tatum of who I would vote. He hasn't been that good this season. Really? Yeah. I mean, he's been good. He's been the fourth best frontcourt player in the East. Who was ahead of him? Scotty Barnes. Oh, nice. You love Scotty Barnes? No, the people of Toronto think I hate Scotty Barnes. And it's weird because it turns <laughs> out that... You had him as an all-star starter and they still think you hate Scotty Barnes? Oh, because of the draft. Oh, because you didn't like him in the draft, but then you started liking him? Well, there was also a yes, but there was also like a very misleading graphic on social media about it that made it look like I was more anti-Scotty Barnes than That's I really That's so was. funny. And like, a, you know, uh, a year ago, Warriors fans were incensed that I picked Luka Doncic over Steph Curry for my Imaginary Player of the Year award. Now, Mavericks fans are incensed that I picked Steph Curry over Luka Doncic for this imaginary starter. And it turns out that maybe I'm not biased against your team. Maybe just things change and my opinion changes. Anyway, <laughs> the power that we have as fans is to ignore the team, is to make them feel it in their pockets. The value of the franchise is probably still going to appreciate. I don't know if baseball clubs are necessarily the same as football teams or even basketball teams for that matter with regards to team value, but completely ignoring them is the power that we have. Not subscribing for the extra tier to pay for their games on, on Comcast. Not complaining about the team on the internet. Being completely ignored. And right now, if this team isn't good, we don't need to talk about them. I don't need to think about the Mariners. I've gone so many years of my life without thinking about the Mariners, that if they're good and they're going to provide entertainment value, then great. But like, it, we don't need to go through this emotional hardship to be fans of the Mariners. You can be a fan of the team when they're good and not a fan of the team when they're bad. In fact, that is probably the most ethical way to be a fan of a sports team. The long-suffering the long sports fan is not holding ownership to a personal level accountable for being bad. 
So not paying attention, ignoring them completely, that is how you can punish the Mariners, right? If you are upset with what the Mariners are doing, don't buy tickets to the games. Don't watch the games. Don't talk about the games on the internet. Don't pay any fucking attention to... I don't think the talking about the games on the internet actually benefits them at all. I think it's mostly just the... The buying tickets and the watching the But it still the has them being part of the conversation. And this, this Mariners team, the thing that we want from them is to be part of the conversation through the summer. So there's something you can have on in the background because that's what baseball is. Like, reasonably, if they don't do that for us, they have provided no value to us as an organization. I mean, the thing about the Mariners, though, is despite all of your naysaying about the outfield, they're going to sign some players. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that they will I, not I go into not opening day there with this so roster. There are so other teams in the league that I think people forget about. Like, when, Well, there's still the same number of players as there were last year. It's not like they've gotten rid of players. <laughs> the Mariners or the overall? Overall in MLB. So some players left the Mariners. Others are going to join. <laughs> and they're gonna, some of those players are going to go to other teams. And other teams' players are going to go to the Mariners. That's how it works. I don't know if that the, is how it works. The pool is fixed. <laughs> But there's still, you can pull players up from the farm, farm even, system. It's not like... Even if the Mariners completely fuck up this offseason. And even if they completely fuck up... The, done and done. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Look, it's like, who are we holding out hope for right now? Cody Bellinger? Rainier Rosarina? Apparently now Jorge Soler. Uh, Rosarina, yeah. Has there been chatter around Soler? Yes. Okay. Uh, Look, even if they completely fuck it up, they're still going to win... Probably 85 games at, at a minimum next season. You really season. think this roster is that good? I think Julio Rodriguez and the pitching staff are that good, yeah. The pitching staff didn't... I mean, Marco Gonzalez got traded, but the pitching staff didn't go away. Julio Rodriguez and Cal Raleigh didn't go away. I mean, yeah, maybe J.P. Crawford regresses to the mean next season. I mean, Jorge Soler is not that good. Right? He- He's like a 10 win over his career player. Six wins over his career. Like, he was an all-star last year, and that's it as a 31-year-old? Like, if you're talking about reasonable investments right now, if Jorge Soler is But you're it, not replacing amazing players, I think is the point that sometimes gets lost in this conversation. How many... How good was Teoscar Hernandez last season? That's the bar. It's not just Teoscar Hernandez, though. It's Teoscar Hernandez and Jared Kelenic and Eugenio Suarez. Again, I, th- I think that people are overvaluing these players because they happen to play for the Mariners. And then new players will come and player- people will overvalue them because they play for the Mariners. And then they will complain when people don't pick them for their fake all-star teams. If this team wins 85 games or is there and makes the playoffs, that'll probably be a good outcome after this offseason. I guess we'll save the rest of it for the bold predictions, but but like that that to me is it. There there is a bit of a social trust with a baseball team that that the ownership group has, right? By buying the team, they have basically bought a chunk of of social trust with the city of Seattle to try to field a competitive team. And for them, the thing that they get in return is the massive increase in value, right, of their investment. It's a really charmingly optimistic way of viewing it. I don't know that Jeff Smolian viewed the Mariners as a public trust when but, he bought but, them. But there is. George like, Argeros. It, it is an investment because ultimately, aside from pillaging the government of the state of Washington and the city of Seattle, like that's already done and happened. Th- those things happen. But they are reliant on people caring about the team. Like, that's it. There's no, it's not like the fucking trains. You know what I mean? They're a baseball team that people have to pay attention to for them to matter, 
there's no guarantee for that to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. And so, but I'm, what I'm telling you is, Julio Rodriguez is going to force people to pay attention, whether the Mariners spend money around him or not. I think you're underestimating how much people hate this ownership group. I think you're underestimating the degree to which people hate a lot of ownership te- groups for teams that they continue to attend games of and watch games of. And because when you're watching the game, it's not like they put John Stanton on the center <laughs> of the screen. They put Julio there. No, and I'm I'm concerned at this point that they're going to Felix Rodriguez, Julio Rodriguez's career. Felix Hernandez, Julio Rodriguez's well, I've got career. some good news. I don't think he's going to go as a dire career without playing in the playoffs. I, in fact, I guarantee you. You understand not what I'm happen. saying, though? When you have a player, I don't think that's like, a reasonable concern. You don't think that's a reasonable concern? Cool, because again, I think this team is already pretty good. Okay. Wow, you are so much more confident in this team. Yeah, I just don't think they were. I don't think they've lost anyone that good. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm coming out and saying it. I think people are freaking out about... I mean, yes, it would be better if they got better replacements for those guys because you don't want to just do as good as Teoscar Hernandez. You want to upgrade to be better and win the division. But also, again, they lost the division by like two fucking games last year. It's not like they lost it by 800. (laughs) That's that's the problem, though, is that they they were so close. And when they cut down on their strikeouts, thanks to Brad Brown. (laughs) Brad Brown. (laughs) Team MVP, Brant Brown. Se- Seattle Sports Figure of the Year 2024, Brant Brown. <laughs> and be like, all right, well, we did, we did, uh, we did Julio two years ago. I think it's Brant Brown's time <laughs> well, this I'll year. I'll still be saving him. <laughs> You'll still be saving. <laughs> You're going to honor it to the entire coaching hitting staff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Seattle Mariners coaching staff. <laughs> Brent Brown, among other players, uh, other people of the Mariners coaching staff. Oh, That's who you're gonna honor. All right. Wow, you're fucking. You're you're talking big Mariners right now. You're you're in the pocket of big Mariner. <laughs> it would be better if they spent more money. And I do think John Stanton should talk to the media. I think that should be a requirement for owners. But a requirement by who? By the league. That they talk to to the fan base? Yeah. It should be a requirement from the goddamn city of Seattle. Sure, to yeah, re- put it in this lease. To, to, I mean, it's the, the, certainly possible. The Sounders... The uh, league although, doesn't want the owners talking to fans. Like, the more that... Pe- the league wants what you're talking about. The league wants you to look at Julio Rodriguez and not think about the net profits. Does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, I suppose they, that's They true. want you to see the people who are the, interesting and marketable. They the want also Shohei. wants you to think whatever the owners want because want you to think because that's who makes up the league. But, but like, it's, it's similar to, like... It's similar to a political party where it's like they want to distract you with the baseball and then take from you over here. I I understand, yes. Right? Like But I'm saying it's possible the Sounders are set up as you know this You're comparing them to soccer? To a European sport? Like the fan base is the I mean, I soccer fans would never let this happen. Soccer fans have let some other things happen ownership wise that have not been very good. So I don't I don't know if I would say that. But it should be with the tax breaks that that the team got dating back to fucking 1995. You know what I mean? Like, like, just because he wasn't the the tax breaks started in 1995, but yes. Just because he wasn't the owner then, this should be a permanent part of having a stadium that received tax breaks from, or even, I don't know if there's cash from the city or whatever. So, one of the things that was in, in, uh, 
in the reporting, I think this was also Jeff Passan, is that now maybe this was someone else that uh, Shohei had, had written guarantees into his contract that the Dodgers would spend the money he's deferring on other players. And I'm like, how would how would you possibly put that in a player contract? But you be Shohei Otani. You can do whatever you want. In a lease, I think you could do some things. Uh but that that's that's what should happen. That's why I, but also at the same time, what's he gonna talk and say nothing? Like we're not gonna get anything by hearing John Stanton speak, I assure you. When Jerry DePoto speaks, John Stanton's words come out of his mouth. So it's not like To a degree. It's he he's trying to fudge it and translate it, but like Jerry DePoto is also not an expert in the Mariners' business operations. I mean, ultimately, though, you know when we got the transparency? When? When Kevin Mather spoke to the... Oh, yeah, Kevin Mather, Mather told us every, of, everything. Nothing, if not transparent in that speech. What a great organization. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> a player who's played 100 games three times in his entire career is going to be the answer. I mean, I don't know that it's Jorge Soler specifically. I'm just saying it's going to be a play. They're going to add a player of that ilk. So, for the first time, since before Thanksgiving, a Seattle professional sports team won a game on Tuesday night as the Seattle Kraken beat the Florida Panthers 4-0, snapping their losing streak at eight games to go along with the Seahawks' four-game losing streak, although one of those games did predate the uh, Kraken's most recent victory. So it was a combined 11-game professional sports losing streak for the city of Seattle until Tuesday night. It happens. <laughs> uh when you're cursed, it does. The Kraken lost nine straight during December and January of their inaugural season, so one shy of that one. Uh, it was not quite as lopsided. They were outscored by 14 goals during their eight-game losing streak. It was an 18 in the nine-game losing streak back in the inaugural season. Uh, uh, some bad news going forward. Philip Grubauer was placed on injured reserve Monday with a lower body injury. Chris Drieger was recalled for his potential first regular season appearance since an ACL tear during the summer of 2022. But on Tuesday night, it was Joey Decord in goal, earning his first career shutout. His uh, Kraken draft pick Riker Evans also scored his first career point. Their homestand continues against Chicago in L.A. before the Kraken start a pre-Christmas road trip in Dallas next week. The Sounders on Tuesday officially bid farewell to Nico Ladero and his MLS free agency opened. Although Ladero had said ahead of the playoffs they would be his last in Seattle, as we discussed at the time, the club had left open the possibility of his return as a free agent. Ladero joined the Sounders in 2016, was part of all four teams that reached the MLS Cup final, winning the first two MLS Cups in franchise history, along with the CONCACAF Champions League last year. Ladero departs number one in franchise history with 95 assists across all competition in the top five in Sounders MLS history with 58 goals in 231 appearances. Is is Nico Ladero number one? Is he the number one Sounder of all time? 100%. There we go. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. Like... If you're doing a Mount Rushmore of Sounders MLS era players, well, Mount Rushmore isn't ranked, so I, I know. But I'm saying he's the first player. Unless you rank that. it, I, mean, <laughs> I can rank whatever I want. <laughs> Nothing's gonna stop me. I, I think Raúl Ruiz Diaz has to be on there. Freddie Montero has to be on there. Not Jordan Morris. He's a contender for the four spot, I would say. And you think Freddie Montero is more in than? I mean, he's the all-time leading goal scorer. Is he really? Yeah. Wow. He was here a long time, the first, and then came back and scored more goals. I feel like one of Stephen the goal- Fry. One of the goalkeepers, yeah, Stephen yeah. Fry. 
I don't think Casey Keller played long enough to get on there. He's like Seattle soccer. I mean, Northwest yes. soccer. Oh, yeah. Seattle soccer, for sure. Uh, I don't think Michael Sprinting going to make it on the Mount Rushmore. See, I don't know. I, I'd be curious people's thoughts about that. But I, I don't think there's any much debate. I, I, we also haven't mentioned Clint Dempsey. Oh, yeah. Obafemi Martins. I mean, there's a lot of guys in the mix. But Ladero to be tops and assists, to be part of the you know, the driving offensive force in all of their MLS Cup final teams and the CONCACAF Champions League winner, he's got to be number one. Awesome. Excluding nobody. Uh, OL Rain prepping for the NWSL expansion draft for the return of the Utah Royals and newcomers Bay FC. That's set for Friday. I thought today was the day they had to submit their uh, protected list for the expansion draft, but I have not seen that information as yet. So we'll discuss those results next week. We do have some WNBA draft oh. lottery results. And they're not what we were hoping oh. for. In what Tristan called the biggest fra- draft lottery in franchise history. It wasn't. Uh, the one thing I didn't mention last week, not only did the Storm get Brianna Stewart in 2016, Subert has said subsequently that the only reason she re-signed with the team that offseason as a free agent is because they won the lottery and were getting Stewart. So that was a pretty important one. In this case, Jewel Lloyd already signed up before this, but uh, the lottery on Sunday went to form with Indiana getting the top pick for the second consecutive year, LA and Phoenix in number two and number three. If the store wasn't going to move up, Indiana getting the number one pick was definitely the best outcome for them. Not that conferences matter a lot, but you've got LA and Phoenix right there at two and three, and uh, they do matter for the Commissioner's Cup. So... As we've talked about, we really don't know what this means for the Storm in terms of who might be available until the spring when we know which of these players is going to declare. But in the latest mock drafts, which generally have everyone who's eligible coming out, uh, my ESPN colleague Michelle Vopel had the Storm taking Camila Cardoso, the six foot seven uh, center from Brazil who plays for South Carolina, uh, was backed up Aaliyah Boston, the rookie of the year for the, the Fever, the no- last year's number one pick, but put up dominant permanent stats and has continued to play quite well this season as the starter for South Carolina. Uh, the athletic Sabrina Merchant had them selecting Rakia Jackson, who was the teammate of Jordan Horston Storm's first round pick this year at Tennessee. It's kind of a surprise that she chose to go back for her fifth year instead of, instead of entering the draft uh, this season when she almost certainly would have been a lottery pick, but uh, has a chance to this year. And the interesting note, both of those mock drafts have Angel Reese in the back half of the first round after her unexplained absence from LSU earlier this season. This is horrible news. <laughs> We'd paid an entire season's worth of attention to this. And to have the fourth pick, I mean, I'm sure Camila Cardoso or Rikia Jackson will be fine. But I'm, I'm out there freaking, I'm watching women's college basketball right now. Like, this was the most engaged that I've been. I will say, I do feel like uh, the WNBA and women's basketball in general, like this, this lottery and this, this season that has happened with Caitlin Clark heading into the draft, like they're in such an incredible place right now. Oh, it's a moment. Uh, and just like watching Caitlin Clark score, whatever the point measure was like, I was watching that game so engaged in it. Um, uh, and I was actually watching Iowa state being like, what, 
what are you doing? <laughs> how they were defending Caitlin Clark? No, not how they were defending Caitlin Clark. Just like they were down. They just moved at such a slow pace. Uh. And they were down at the end of the game. And they're like working the ball into the post. And it's like, you need to have two different ways to play offense. Like you can't just run the normal offense when you're down six with like 30 seconds left. It was a little frustrating to watch. Uh, but at the same time, I was watching Iowa versus Iowa State basketball. So that was Caitlin Clark scoring her 3,000th career point last Wednesday. Uh, she's still closing in on Kelsey Plum's all-time Division One record. Apparently the second fastest to 3,000 points behind Patricia Hoskins of Mississippi Valley State in 1985 to 1989. There we go. That was an impressive run. I did not know that. Uh, Kelsey Plum needed 123 games to get there. Caitlin Clark took 110, but Plum's pace accelerated pretty quickly her senior year, including the, was it 57 she dropped awesome. when she became the all-time leader? Yeah, that was so cool. We were at that game. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I covered it. Uh, Plum finished with 3,527. Well, speaking of UW women's basketball, their biggest win of the as-yet-undefeated season came Sunday in their Pac-12 opener at number 21, Washington State, Huskies led 10-2 after one quarter, during which the Cougars <laughs> shot one of 15 of the field, yeah, for the field. Uh, and by 20 at halftime... How long are the quarters? 10 minutes? Yeah. They scored two points in they 10 minutes? They shot one of 15 from the field. Are they my first grade basketball team? <laughs> They're not, and the Utah women's basketball defense is much better than the ones you're facing, thankfully. Uh, Huskies led by 20 at halftime, 37-17 before Scrivivia late scare. An 11-3 WSU run cut the lead to two with 34 seconds left, but the Huskies made three of four free throws to see out the upset win. There we go. At Beasley Coliseum. I, I, I don't know if I emphasize this. Uh, the Huskies did this without their leading scorer, El Ladine. Hannah Steins had a career-high 21 points and nine boards, and Lauren Schwartz scored 20 for UW. Uh, it is the first time the Huskies have started 10-0 since 1997 98. Still with the relatively weak schedule they've faced, have not yet cracked the uh, the rankings, but they are the top team receiving votes, number 26 in the AP poll, number 28 in the coaches poll. After this one-off game, now back to non-conference play with the final home game of 2023 on Saturday against St. Mary's. Gales are 4-6 and six under first-year head coach Jeff Kamen. They were competitive at Cal in their lone matchup against a power conference foe, losing by five, but are coming off a 21-point loss at UC Davis. Not great. Uh, would you say right now, I mean, obviously being number 26 in the country, but their chances, barring something unexpected, of making the NCAA tournament are very high at this point, right? They're definitely trending towards it, even if you look at... Uh, you know, basketball references, simple rating system has them as the 35th best team in the country so far. And that's, you know, certainly the kind of team that is going to make the NCAA tournament. So that would be very exciting because the last time the Huskies made the NCAA tournament was Kelsey Plum's senior season. This is very fun. Yeah. Also, I, I just feel like we'll talk about this in a second with Husky men's basketball, but UW sports teams being very good at beating their most hated rivals this year. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. And, and, beating, and also... It's weird that it, the most hated Three different teams. Is, yeah. I don't actually know if that's the, the UW, the women's team most hated rival is Wazoo. But I like, think it probably is. I mean, they had a good rivalry with Oregon last year where they faced each other four times, uh, split the season series 2-2. Uh, with the Huskies ultimately winning the most important of these those four games in the WNIT on their route. It's important to, the to have your hate be complicated and varied. <laughs> yes, it is. 
Well, let's get to it. You what what are we going to do the coach's corner? I don't have a long coach's corner, but where, where should we drop that in? Uh, do you want to do it after you do men's basketball? Sure. Okay. It'll just be a whole basketball section. Yeah. Yeah. Gonzaga. <sighs> I felt like you were going to come with something here. I, I, I saw so little of it that I didn't have the, like, I didn't have the stress of it. I saw the very, and you saw none of this game, right? Zero seconds. That is wild. I saw the Frank Kevnong highlights on Twitter. This is probably the most important UW men's basketball win since. I mean, in terms of most important, it's got to be since the Arizona win. Oh my God. That was, and that was so much fun. This Which, wasn't as much fun. I, you, I will be honest. Even though it was beating Gonzaga, the way that they beat Arizona was way more fun. But like the only UW men's basketball game post game emergency pod we've ever done, where I drove back from the game and did it with you and the famous cousin Katie, to beat Gonzaga for the first time since two thousand and five, and really we felt like I don't want to say confident going in, but it felt like we knew there was a chance. There, this might have been the year. Yeah. And I and I said before, and that Gonzaga was beatable. Now they are a juggernaut. Now that UW beat them. <laughs> And this is such an impressive victory. And I think what you really have to look at is all of the wins that Gonzaga has against other non-conference opponents, right? With the only other loss being against a very good Purdue team, they've beaten some very good teams. Look, make no no mistake, this is an amazing Gonzaga (laughs) team that UW beat. Just as good as any of the other Gonzaga teams. This is your father's Gonzaga team. I mean, they are still 13th in Ken Palm, so it's not... Well, they actually dropped kind of a lot. Totally a bet. I mean, yeah, they dropped... I think they were 8th. Uh, going into that game, they dropped to 12th afterwards, and then subsequently someone else jumped them uh, based on results I, after the fact. The only thing that is surprising to me after this win is just looking back at like the Nevada game and being like, how did they not win that game? Uh, I agree. And ultimately, I think this UW team, you know, they're they're still figuring it out, but they are getting better throughout the season, and it's kind of what we talked about. There's the hint of shooting. There's the two big men in the middle. With Breidenbach as well. Frank Frank Kepnong definitely just looking like a beast this year, coming back from injury. I, I think mean, you are wonder one thing I am wondering is like, man, was last year's team actually secretly good if Kepnong hadn't gotten injured? I mean, obviously Braxton Mia was awesome last season in Pac twelve play. But if you would have had both of those guys. Oh, I, I definitely hurt. But then Keon Brooks in his scoring, Xavier Wheeler, like in his slashing ability, this team is just kinda good. I think as we head toward Pac twelve play. They are going to be in the mix in a way that we have not seen them be in the mix in a very long time. And I think they're going to be competitive in every single game, even though they play some teams that are definitely better than Gonzaga in Pac-12 play. But like, I don't just going toe to toe with Gonzaga. It it wasn't a fluke victory. You know what I mean? They just beat them. Gonzaga came in here and we beat them. And that was amazing. I think what stands out to me is like, they actually went 11 and nine in conference play two years ago, believe it or not. But, like, they had no chance at a non-conference bid. Because of how bad they played non-conference. Yeah, they went 5-5 five and five of an in non-conference yeah. play, losing, as we've discussed, at home to Northern Illinois, Winthrop, a, a pretty good Wyoming team, and Utah Valley. <laughs> We're always having to caveat the team. The team. Oh, you saw EK on Saturday night, didn't you? I Oh, yeah. That, okay, He's yeah. the guy who transferred from Wyoming to Gonzaga. And is when, now by Gonzaga's the time best I was player. watching, no, nobody on Gonzaga did anything good. But I do think... They, yeah, they did struggle down the street. Frank Kecknong cleaning up in the post and the size that Keon Brooks has, 
I just think defensively, this team playing the man, like it's a really hard team to score against. And if Keon Brooks is doing his thing and and scoring with his height, like it, they could just do it. <laughs> Whatever that was is pretty ugly. That, the, all that red in a row. So this was the 2019-20 season. That's the last year I'm saying they went into conference play with a legitimate chance at an at-large bid. They were ten and two going or ten and three going into conference play that year. But they, they have not they, had a win non-conference it, as good as Gonzaga since. No, they have because that year they beat ba- a Baylor team that ranked third in Ken Palm on a neutral site. It's, I don't know what happened to that team exactly because that was the year Quade Green was eligible. Or no, I guess that was the Quade Green team. Yeah, okay, that was the game where he was academically ineligible for the second semester and they fell apart without him. They just got crushed. Yeah. Uh but yeah, beating Gonzaga it feels so good to have back-to-back... Is that back-to-back weekends? To have beaten Oregon and Gonzaga in back-to-back weekends. Troy Dannon, look at the job you have done here at the University of Washington. Really came in at the right time. It's interesting you highlighted the defense. They're actually slightly better in adjusted offensive efficiency on Ken Palm right now. It's kind of wild. Just outside the top 50 in both of those. As we mentioned last week, it's already the best... Uh, you know, it's far and away the best offense that they've had in the Mike Hopkins era. At this point, it is the best adjusted offensive efficiency they've had since the last NCAA tournament team uh, under Lorenzo Romar in 2011. That's so, not the last NCAA tournament team. But Romar's last NCAA tournament team. I was going to say, Hop did make an NCAA tournament. He did, yes. Two? You make two? Just one. And he was Pac-12 coach of the year two times? It's like Bo Nix winning. <laughs> Pac, all Pac-12 quarterback while not being the best quarterback in the country. Well, you can do that while that being. They're the going to honorarily put him in the Heisman House. All, all of a sudden, it'll be Tim Tebow and Bo Nix. Like you know that they're just they were just like yeah, but like the well, real winner. They'll hopefully. they'll figure out a way to make Jaden Daniels uh, academically ineligible or something, and hopefully. then just skip over the Michael Penix vote. Yeah. Hopefully Michael Penix Jr. is too busy playing in the NFL to worry about the Heisman House anytime soon. I know that Kyler Murray is in those commercials. I think Caleb Williams is also. Yeah. Well, he's not currently in the NFL. Uh, this was, not just was it the first lost UW since 2005, the Brandon Roy game, a seven-game losing streak. This was their first loss to any Pac-12 foe since December 2015. They had won 16 consecutive games. They basically put together a perfect season of Pac-12 conference play <laughs> in that stretch before losing to the Huskies. Yeah, so you, you saw this stretch. They held, they held the Zags scoreless from the 7-12 mark of the second half to the one-minute mark, uh, taking a six-point lead in that process. And it was errors that was Gonzaga was making, you know, but the defense also was very, very solid during that time period. And I think the thing that's most impressive to me about this is UW didn't just beat Gonzaga. They have ended Gonzaga's program. Wow. <clears throat> it's been a good run. Good run. Let me tell you why. It started in Seattle at Key Arena, famously beating uh, Minnesota after they had the academic scandal and had several players uh, suspended. That's where this all traces back to on road to the Elite Eight back in 1998. And now apparently it's come to an end in Seattle as well. And you know, it was unfortunate for them. They had such an impressive run of zero national championships. Um, Participating is great. You know, <laughs> when I look back at all those UW men's basketball national look, championships, they have as many national championships as Oregon has in football. And I think that that it, it, it's been such an impressive run to watch, you know, the victory. I think there was a Loyola Marymount victory, Pepperdine, <laughs> those beating San Francisco. Actually, you remember that game last year? Uh, you know, Bill Cartwright being there, excited about it. And, uh, you know, Gonzaga held on for the win, and that's a good win against San Francisco. But 
I think the main thing that happened here with conference realignment consolidation is Gonzaga realizes the writing is on the wall now. They're, they're going to do anything they can. They're desperate to get into the Big 12 and, and the, the, the silver spoon that they were born with, right, as a program. It's over now. When they go start playing Big 12 basketball, all of a sudden people are going to be like, I could play in the same conference and I could be in motherfucking Spokane or I can be in Arizona or I could be at one of these teams that have actual history beyond that, that have national championships, like I believe Baylor might. And it's going to get a lot harder from here. Like Gonzaga had, they had this whole time period. They had this long run to do this. And all of a sudden, the cavalry is coming against Gonzaga because recruiting is about to get a lot harder than it once was. The promise of domination at the kennel is not going to be the same. Meanwhile, resources-wise... pretty sure all the recruits that they get from international internationally are very concerned with all these things. All of a sudden, look, when you don't win every year because you're playing the Loyola Marymounts and the San Francisco's they in the world... They haven't changed conferences. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> or there's a reality, too, that... Like the the way that conference realignment is happening is it's going to affect basketball as well. We haven't talked about it. We haven't thought about yeah, it. It's going to hurt seen. basketball by making it less important. There's also fifty million dollars a year coming to the University of Washington well, and to Oregon. They're spending all of it on paying Kevin DeBoer's extension, <laughs> which they should. And also, there's a lot of money not coming to the University of Washington and University of Oregon. I don't know if you've been following the court filings. <laughs> the there Maybe is a, you need to call up John Stanton and ask for a loan. There is a, there is a reality to that is about to hit the University of Gonzaga with regards to basketball. Gonzaga University. Gonzaga University with regards to basketball and how it is structured right now. Conference realignment is not going to be you good know, for the good them. news is I think people have been predicting the end of Gonzaga for 25 fucking years now. Actually, it's almost 26 because it's almost 2024. Uh, we'll see how ended they are on Friday when they face UConn at Climate Pledge Arena. I mean, I, I look, I'm not saying... I, this was just the start. This was the start oh. of the end, right? Okay. This this was the, the, the... What is it? Kenny Wheaton, right? Like, th- this was the Kenny Wheaton for Gonzaga. They'll know, look back at this I don't know who moment. the Phil Knight is in this particular scenario. Troy Dannon. <laughs> All Troy Dannon does is win, right? How many games has the University of Washington lost in, in, in women's basketball, men's basketball, and football? Three games since he started. That is correct. Is that right? Yeah. Troy Dannon is a winner. <laughs> people, are, people aren't looking at the Troy Dannon era as positively, right? I, Jen I, Cohen I don't, really, know, that, I don't just, know that other people are looking at it as an era yet. I it's, think that's it, just you. Jen Cohen made a decision. Look, I'm sure she's very happy. I talked to a, a member of uh, an artist I work with who's in LA and they're from Seattle. And he was like, it's, it's about 70 degrees here today or whatever. He's like, I feel like it's spring. And I was like, I actually hate you. <laughs> so look, Jen Cohen's so happy in life. And I think that's the most important thing. These sports things don't matter, right? Her, her quality of life, the football team is going to be bad and the basketball team is going to be irrelevant. But I think the basketball team was pretty relevant the other day when Bronny <laughs> James made his debut with LeBron in attendance. <laughs> Seemed relevant. But the quality of life is so much better. And I think that's the most important Literally thing. Literally all the NBA people I follow. Winning doesn't that have game. to matter. How did Bronny play, by the way? I, I didn't pay real close attention. He had a highlight block, though. I saw that. Yeah. 
just awesome to see him back on the court, first and foremost. Uh, Mike Hopkins apparently broke his right hand, banging it on the scores there we during go. this game. Because... God, Mike Hopkins somehow has really turned it around. <laughs> yes. I will say, you got I, I feel like that shows the, co- the commitment right there. It does show something. Uh, Huskies preparing now for their. Was that first... a happy banging on the scorers table, or I think it was early in the game, frustrated about a turnover, as I as I understand it. Uh, Huskies now prepping for their first road game of the season coming up. The first time they will play at Climate Pledge Arena on Sunday against host Seattle U. Uh, Redhawks were six and three entering Tuesday night's game against USF against what had been a very weak schedule to date. They lost both of their road games at VCU and Utah Valley, the latter in the, their WAC opener, as well as a bad home loss to Northern Arizona, but still rate higher in Ken Palm at 131 than the program has ever finished since returning to Division One. Seattle U is led by senior guards Cam Tyson and Alex Shoemaker, who average a combined 30.4 points per game. Tyson hasn't been as prolific as last season when he briefly led the NCAA in scoring before finishing at 18.6 points per game, but remains an especially dangerous three-point shooter, making 3.1 per game at a 38% clip. So Huskies will need to stay glued to him. Uh, We forgot to hit this last week. Percy Allen of the Seattle Times reported the Huskies are hoping Wesley Yates III can return for the start of conference play at the end of December. Hopkins said Yates' return from a foot injury is still TBD, although he was doing individual drills at that point. Also said that fellow freshman Christian King will redshirt this season. Uh, Do you think NIL money, in the same way that it has for quarterbacks especially, has come to college basketball, really? Yes. In a big way? Yes. Okay. That's why I think Graham E.K. transferred from Wyoming to Gonzaga. Because of NIL money? Oh, yeah. At Gonzaga? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, as... Gonzaga is the pro sports team in Spokane. Spokane's a, a reasonably large city. You can't see the aggressive eye rolling I'm doing. Uh, Gonzaga is going to be just fine wherever they go. They're going to be fine. There's not a lot of money in Texas, is there, right? Most of those Big 12 teams don't have oil tycoons that support them, do they? The, team, the oil tycoon teams are the ones that, that headed to the other conferences. Oh, yeah, Oklahoma State. <laughs> I guess Oklahoma State is. A... T. Boone Pickens? I believe T. Boone Pickens passed away. Yeah, but the money's still there. The, he did, the money wasn't buried in the grave like Drake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. Uh, anyway, we'll see. We will see. All right. Time for Coach's Corner? Yeah. The return. Uh, so just one practice so far with my dogs, the first grade Hornets. And uh, so... Are you named after the Charlotte Hornets? I, I, have, I haven't seen the other team's names. So you kind of figure out what it is. I assume it's the Charlotte Hornets, though. Yeah. Uh, we were named after SEC teams last year. We were the Bulldogs, and it was like one of them. <laughs> <laughs> You should have just chosen Georgia. People are like, we're Georgia. And I'm like, but are we? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are a Hornets. You need to uh, see the particular shade of red to know. Uh, so I, I'm introducing myself to the players, having the players introduce themselves uh, to me and the assistant coach or whatever. And so I'm like, say your name and whether you've played basketball before and your favorite basketball team or player. And so we're going through the entire team, right? And it's like every single one could not, not a single one named a team or a player. Actually, I think one kid was like, what's his name? So they're like going through and, and the first kid's like, hi, I'm blah, blah, blah. Like, 
I've played basketball before. My favorite player is myself. Oh, wow. And then somebody else next to him was like, uh, well, I don't, I'm blah, blah, blah. I haven't played basketball. I haven't played on this team yet, but this team's my favorite. And I'm like, okay, great. It really, you know, love that he's supporting the team. You know, I love when my dogs support, support the team. <laughs> but uh, then like the next kid's like, I haven't played basketball before. I don't have a favorite player or a favorite team. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, let's just get through this exercise. Somebody's like, I don't have a, I don't know. I don't, I'm, here's my name. I've played basketball before. My favorite players. What's his name? Michael Jordan. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But also I have to remember, like, for me, I've been living like almost 40 years of Michael Jordan's existence. And this kid is like, he's been retired his entire life. So I'm trying to think who would be the equivalent athlete to you. Because these been kids like were born Dr. J in or 2017, right? 2016 or 2017. Yeah, somewhere around there. So I don't think any basketball player was as famous in 1985 as, or whatever, 1990, as Michael Jordan I agree. Like historically, it's, it's like Jerry West, or like Wilt, or yeah. something. Uh, so then we get to Mateo, and he's like, "My name is Mateo. I've played basketball before, and my favorite team is the Philadelphia Sixers, <laughs> and my favorite player is Dikembe Mutombo." <laughs> Dikembe Mutombo out of nowhere. <laughs> Not even Allen Iverson. After he was rocking your Allen Iverson. That was later. That was later. Okay. Out of complete nowhere, and I'm just like. I, we have not talked about Dikembe Mutombo, his <laughs> tenure with the Sixers. I had no idea that he even knew that Dikembe Mutombo had played with the Sixers. Definitely not a player you associate historically. When you think of Dikembe Mutombo, you not think of the Sixers, first and foremost. I am willing, for, for the sake of the hilarity of a six-year-old being like, I love Dikembe Mutombo, to forego to look past my personal history with Dikembe Mutombo and him doing the finger wave or whatever. The six-year-old, of course, not Dikembe Mutombo, wagging his finger. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, he was the only person who named a player, and it was Dikembe Mutombo <laughs> of all players from his Philadelphia 76ers tenure. Oh. Didn't even go with Eric Snow. How disappointing. He pulled or out. Todd McCullough. This, this weekend, he found my old school red 76ers Allen Iverson jersey, and I was like, let me tell you a story about this. If you think, if you think, I actually had forgotten about this until we were there, that you were the first Carcino child. To have been a fan of Philadelphia sports. Just listen to this. Three years in a row for Christmas, I got Philadelphia 76ers basketball jerseys. Was one of them a Stackhouse? The first one, first favorite player on the Sixers, Jerry Stackhouse. And Stackhouse, I think this was the next year. I think this was after they had drafted Iverson. Missed the game in Seattle. No, it was his rookie year. He punched Jeff Hornacek. Uh, That was his rookie year that he missed the game. Okay. And I was so upset about it, not seeing Jerry Stackhouse live. And then the next year, same jerseys, the old school red jerseys, got the Allen Iverson jersey. And I was like, let me tell you what happened the year after that, Mateo. The Sixers changed their jerseys. And I was like, somewhere in this house, I'm pretty sure, or Jan's house, there is a black Allen Iverson jersey of the newer style, the ones that they went to the finals with. So thinking back on this, I'm like, how is Mateo a Philadelphia sports fan? And I'm like, three years in a row, I got Philadelphia 76ers basketball jerseys. That is bonkers to think about. I, I had forgotten that it was three years in a row. That's the, a perspective the right there. The, but I, also at the same time, I'm like, these are so, like, they're still so dope. Oh, yeah. So when... I mean, I like the blue one a little better, the, the blue-black one a little better than the I don't even one. know if they had those in... I think they just had the black ones. The blue one came out a little bit after oh, that. okay. Uh, but if he were to get a Jalen Hurts jersey, which is the only thing he's asking for for <laughs> Christmas, uh, I'm like, that will kind of age well because it'll, it'll A, be funny, and B, like... Jalen Hurts probably in hindsight will be cool. 
It's not like he's asking for a Brock Purdy jersey or something. <laughs> it could be worse. Really but have taken a video of this pod, Brock Purdy. But also, in our in our house, known to cause much like a Philadelphia sports fan, any time that you wish to bring up their point differential or the beating that the Eagles have taken the last two weekends. <laughs> Mateo is ready and willing to fight with you about these things like a true Philadelphia sports fan. He is he did some new seconds of the game against the Cowboys, but is very angry at other people insinuating that the Eagles are not the best team in the league. <laughs> well, I, I think he's going to be angry about the rest of this pod. Then. I'm happy that I'm going to be at the game. I don't have to. He's, he's very bummed that he can't go. Uh, I'm, miss, oh, the, I'm missing this week's practice, so I, we're not going to have Coach's Corner until January. Allen Iverson's debut game in Seattle at Key Arena, he had the tip dunk off a missed free throw. That was here? Yeah. Greatest play of all time. And we had like a perfect view on it from Section 222, home of the real fans. There we go. We haven't done that one off in a while. All right, let's do UW football now and, and wrap up with the Seahawks just because of the fact that even though UW still has the hammer, uh, as we've talked about, uh, there's just not as much to say about them right now uh, in this period of time as they prep for the college football playoff semifinals and navigate the transfer portal and transfers at this time of year. A couple of Huskies have submitted their notifications of transfer, most notably quarterback Dylan Morris. Uh, per Softy, Ryan Grubb said that Morris will stay with the team through the remainder of the season, uh, but... He's looking elsewhere for his final season of eligibility after starting two seasons at UW and then backing up Michael Penix Jr. the last two seasons. Dylan Morris could have put his notification of transfer the second that Michael Penix won the job two years ago. Like, I've been telling you this for a long time. Dylan Morris was never going to take over a starter. In the transfer era, I don't know if UW will almost ever have a quarterback that's not a transfer. Like, it would have to be a pretty special freshman who's coming in or somebody young. I think could it's possible develop? that someone could develop as a recruit behind, you know... It's what happened with Dylan Gabriel. Let's say they bring in Will Rogers, who is scheduled to tra- the Mississippi State Let's also be clear schedule. here. There's no... Will Rogers is coming to UW. Like, I, don't it, think it's a, I don't think it's that much of a done deal, but it seems like the most likely scenario. Your starting quarterback for the University of Washington football team in 2024 will be Will Rogers. He's scheduled to visit UW this week per on3.com. But let's say that Austin Mack next year you know, is his backup, uh, develops, and the Huskies feel confident that in 2025 he can be the starting quarterback. I don't think they necessarily will add a starting caliber player via transfer. Uh, So, I mean, i bummed to see Dylan Morris go. He obviously, in some very strange times, uh, had some good wins for UW. I really would love to see him start in a Ryan Grubb, Kalen DeBoer, UW offense, and just because just I'm fascinated to see how he's it like goes. Drew Locke, where it's like you'd love to see him start, but maybe not actually. You know, like it'd be curious if the stakes didn't matter, like the Seahawks game where the stakes just don't matter at all. Uh, uh, they certainly didn't on Sunday. But for the University of Washington coming off a college football playoff appearance, I'm good. I'm good on Dylan Morris. I mean, I wish him the best of success wherever. No, he goes this is next nothing. Season. Nothing personal. I think he also showed his limitations in his time starting as well. He was a young quarterback, but he was not as didn't play as badly as somebody like Sam Hewer did. He was a probably very solid backup quarterback. Should anything have had happened to Michael Penix, but, but that's also like that caliber of quarterback is good enough to start for 
a high number of teams throughout yeah. the country, even maybe and that's some why power you conference it. teams. That's the good thing about transfer. People do all sorts of complaining about the transfer portal, but ultimately, the transfer portal is good. It means that more players are starting in the right places. It's it's really it's for all positions, but it is mostly a quarterback thing. And if you take all the quarterbacks and rather than having a quarterback sit somewhere, fit them into you know you get in where you fit in, right? Put find them the right place to be, and that's what had to happen for somebody like Jaden Daniels. Like, is Jaden Daniels winning the Heisman if he's at Arizona State? Almost certainly not. No. Is Michael Penix number two in Heisman if he's at Indiana? Like, you have to have players kind water finds its level, and it's good that the NCAA is allowing that to happen now. And prior, it just meant that there were kind of some teams that were probably good outside of quarterback who weren't able to find a quarterback, and now they are. And so it's making a lot of these teams more competitive. It's bad for the Gonzagas of the world. But... <laughs> I mean, ultimately, it's bad for... Again, Gonzaga went to the championship game with, like, multiple transfers. They kind of invented transfers with the whole Kyle Wilcher... It's more bad for the Oregon States and the Wazoos of the world, who are both losing their starting quarterbacks. To I don't the know if you're report. aware of where Oregon State's starting quarterback last year, DJ Uyangalele, came from. He was a transfer. Fun fact. Also, Cameron Ward was, too. I'm talking positively about the transfer report. I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay. You're agreeing with me? But you're saying it's bad for them. It's bad for them now. It, yes, this offseason. I'm not talking about... I'm talking about being in the Pac-2, it's bad for them. And it's going to be bad for smaller schools because good quarterbacks are going to continue moving to larger schools. Yeah, but quarterbacks who wash out at the Power 5 level are more likely to tra- down transfer. So That's think... exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Thank you for agreeing with me. But... Uh, this isn't just Will Rogers, though. Also, Mississippi State running back Joquavius Marks is visiting UW as well, which could be... You didn't see this? Is he, did he back up Dylan Johnson? I mean, first off, I, my, my, like I included this. My general philosophy, this is probably true with recruiting, too. Like, Tell me when they're on the roster. I don't care up until then. I, think I don't Rogers, need to be tracking the planes. Will Rogers and probably Joquavius Marks will be on the roster but soon. did he back up Dylan Johnson? Because Dylan Johnson came from Mississippi State, right? Absolutely he did. There is now a Mississippi State pipeline to the University of Washington. And I love that DJ came here, had such a good time. You know he was talking with Joquavius and Will Rogers about it and how good of a time he's had in Seattle and helped, I assume, bring them here in some capacity. They're not here yet. But... Joquavius Marks had a lot of receptions and a lot of carries, both while Dylan Johnson was there and while Dylan Johnson wasn't there. Like, the receptions in the Mike Leach offense, he had tons of receptions. It's for, like, 6.6 yards per per reception or something like that, but, like, tons of receptions. And to have him come in and compete for starting running back next year, it it could be huge. My other favorite piece about this is, there's something about those Bulldogs, right? That's why, to me, I was not the Georgia Bulldogs. We were the Mississippi State Bulldogs oh, last year because we were grimy. And I remember looking up. I was like, what college did Fletcher Cox go to? Because I was complaining about how all the Eagles defenders uh, played for Georgia. Oh, we're going to get to them. Soft, soft defenders. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Fletcher Cox went to Mississippi State. That's how you know Fletcher Cox actually has that dog in him, Right. If there is one dog to believe in, it is players from Mississippi State. Hopefully that it's is, players from Washington. That is tried and true. I'm about that Mississippi State lifestyle. He went to Ole Miss. I went to work, right? <laughs> like, Mississippi State is 
what it's about and having those players come here to Seattle. Uh, I think it's an awesome pipeline to have set up. Or coming here to Seattle to visit. Literally. Have not yet come to the roster. Uh, so we can't talk about Will Rogers. We're not having any further conversation. I, can just, we, just tell me when he's here. Tell okay. He's on the roster. Can we complain about Dylan Gabriel? It's official, but we don't have enough time left in this podcast. So no. Ugh. That's my resp- That's what I have to say about Dylan Gabriel and Oregon. Where's he going to? Oregon. Will Rogers will be better though. That's the thing. Michael Penix Jr. Better than Bo Nix. I mean, you but, get you give. Yeah, we'll, we'll, okay, okay, fine. We'll fine, talk fine, about it later. Fine. It'll uh, be like next week. You're making it seem like it's gonna be months. Uh, uh, that's not right now. Bring me Joe Quavius. Midnight. Safety Vince Nunley submitted his notification of transfer. The 2021 recruit Richard in his first season and missed all but the season opener in 2022 due to injury. Nunley made his first career start at Michigan State, but fell behind Mikel Estine in the rotation and was not with the team late in the season due to what Kaelin DeBoer called personal reasons. I love Mikel Estine, too. He uh, was playing a college football franchise that started last year with last year's roster and he transferred over the off season. And I was like, you have to, you could try to convince them. And I was like, I will do anything <laughs> to convince you to stay Mikel Estee. Recruited violations for I, Mikel Estee. I couldn't bring him back. Literally every single player came back. Like I didn't have to convince like Odunze and Penix and players like that. They are a 99 offense and defense heading into the season that we are now in. Well, you know who is not a 99 offensive defense? It's the Seattle Seahawks who suffered their fourth consecutive loss, 28-16 to at San Francisco last week. In that scenario where Drew Locke got the start as Geno Smith missed the game due to a groin injury suffered in a freak play on practice, in practice on Thursday. And Drew Locke, mostly pretty good. The offense played generally well. San Francisco's 9.9 yards per play were the most against the Seahawks in franchise history, that according to StatMed.com. And not even like by a little bit. They were by a lot the most yards per play in franchise history. That is incredible. I, I feel like the 9.9 yards per play, it's so funny because you look at this game versus the game that the Seahawks played against the Niners on Thanksgiving Day, and they almost were completely opposite games defensively, where in that game, the Seahawks gave up a ton of points. But the yards per play weren't bad. And Correct. in this one, the game was relatively close. This was like like stupid people thought it was a closer game than it actually was. You know, like in reality, when the Niners are gaining 10 yards per play. A first down every play. Every single play, they're gaining a first down. It was only a 12-point win, but in reality, it they was like... the spread. It's, yeah, great. But it was like it was like a 50-point win, right? If they, they could have, at those yards per play, dropped... 63 on the Seahawks like this this was they were lucky because of a couple of fluke plays even the interception that was thrown the interceptions uh were just like they were such lucky plays you know yeah I mean that's what kept them in this game was a couple of San Francisco turnover three San Francisco turnover there was at least two right uh by the way I was so I was in the casino on Sunday as this game started I saw the San Francisco had scored a touchdown in like two minutes. I didn't know how at that point the the Christian McCaffrey 72-yard run that set it up. And I was like, all right, that checks out. And then was shocked when the Seahawks immediately marched down and scored a touchdown. Like, oh, I might have to pay attention to this game. I know. I I was definitely, the first drive was just like, okay, it's going to be this game. Cool. Great. I don't need to pay too much attention here. I also dropped $20 on the Huskies' money line against Texas. I couldn't find a way to bet on them to win the college football playoff on the machine that I was looking at because I was doing this quickly. I think you're good. I think, I mean, they're going to beat Texas. We'll see. 
100% give a we'll see on that one. We'll see on beyond that. Seahawks down to 26th in defensive DVOA, which will be their worst since Pete Carroll's first year in Seattle when they finished 29th under the old formula. I don't know what that's been revised downward to uh, in the new version of DVOA. Look, I've been saying it all season. Even when their results were a little better than this. The scheme is fundamentally broken in ways that require a complete overhaul of what they are doing and probably Pete Carroll's non-involvement in the defense. Wow. Spoken very clearly. <laughs> Harshly but clearly, non-involvement in the defense. So unless Pete Carroll is going to uh, continue to be the head coach and have no involvement whatsoever in the defense, you're saying that Pete... He just doesn't way- get to involve, be involved in the scheme or the game planning. Just, just those things. He gets to talk to the defense, no? <laughs> That is what you're talking about is you're saying that Pete Carroll needs to be fired. I I actually do still think that Pete Carroll is a manager, is like a CEO. He's really good at it. It's just his defense does not work. And unfortunately, he is primarily a defensive coach. Yeah. There there's no world that Pete Carroll is just the CEO of the team and not involved in the defense, though. I mean, he he probably could like tastefully graduate to a front office position uh, if that's something that he was interested in. But I know Pete Carroll, and that just does not seem like something that he's interested in. It seems unlikely. I will say I felt really angry on Monday. This is going to be a much angrier segment because it seemed like he was throwing the players completely under the bus with his comments on the Pete Carroll show. Did he come back and... Having having checked out the quotes in their entirety, I don't think that was as much the case. It was a lot of him saying you know, on the coverage bus that they did have that led to several touchdowns. That <laughs> several touchdowns. Multiple touchdowns. That we, I like that you, you, I thought you used the, the coverage bus as if it was one and it led to multiple touchdowns. <laughs> wow. That was, it was a really they bad scored. Bus. They went down and scored again. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you just run back and forth on the field a couple times, you get more points. <laughs> the time that Julian Love was flagged for pass interference on the touchdown. They could have scored multiple touchdowns <laughs> on that one. They ran across the entire course of the earth and back for another touchdown. That's how bad the coverage bus were. But he did say repeatedly, actually, in that interview that, that it was on him. That we as a coaching staff need to communicate better with the players and get it fixed. I I mean, this is the first they won't, time. But <clears throat> I, actually, I don't know if this is the first time that I feel like Pete may have lost the team a little bit. Like, I just don't even know what that means, lost the team. To me, lost the team means you're not trying hard. And I don't think the issue for the Seahawks is that they're not trying hard. You know what the issue is? They're trying so fucking hard that three guys run into a line and Christian McCaffrey is able to cut back across the field and run for 72 yards. Some of the older players, the younger players haven't been here when the defense was good. Bobby Wagner's seen a good defense. Bobby Wagner might be the only one at this point, because we have to go back to 2017 to find the last time they were above average in defensive DVOA. So basically nobody else has been on this team when the defense was good. And I, I agree Frank with Clark you. may have been here. I don't think there is clearly enough defensive talent that this, like, is this team, like, talent-wise, that much worse than the Texans or something? Like, there is enough defensive talent that if the scheme were right that they should be significantly better. But there's a reality that 
at this point, the scheme just isn't. And they've played these teams like the 49ers and the Rams over and over and over again with this trash scheme. And it's easy for them to win these games. Like, it's not a surprise that those two teams are 4-0 against the Seahawks. In fairness, it wasn't easy for the Rams to win the, at home against the Seahawks, but three of those four games have when been pretty one-sided. Yes. yes. Uh, but that that's just, that's what it is. Like, these quarterbacks have seen it over and over and over again. These coaches have seen it over, over and over and over again. It's not changing. It's not getting better. The talent is, the players are changing slightly, but like... The scheme is what it is, and that's why old, crafty veteran quarterbacks are able to pick it apart because it's a pick-apartable defense. And it was it was very frustrating losing Devin Witherspoon early because I do think that was a bit of a factor in this game. I agree, but and and like you kind of have to point to the ten yards per play. Like Devin Witherspoon doesn't get responsibility for that or whatever. He's not the difference between then seven yards per play. He might be. You don't think so? If Devin Witherspoon well, is there, is still a lot. He's not the difference between that and five yards per yeah, play. Yeah, probably. If Devin Witherspoon is still there, I don't. This may not be by far the worst defensive performance in the history of the Seahawks. <laughs> if that's what we're talking about, it but was, like that was originally called a rib injury, later diagnosed as a hip po- pointer that Pete Carroll called legitimate, but did say he expects Witherspoon to play against the Eagles on Monday Night Football, and that Trey Brown has a really good chance to play after missing the Niners game with a heel injury. So I was watching the game, thinking about the defense and just how much I just deeply don't like them, and like it, it's not personal, but I love Devin. But then I was thinking about it, and I was like, do I like any players on the Seahawks team? Like, do I like this team? And I was like, why do I care? And I was like, okay, I love Devin Witherspoon, Reek Woolen. I like Julian Love. I like Boye Mafe. We're strictly talking defense here. And then on offense, I love JSN, Tyler, DK for everything, but still love DK, right? Charbonnet. Jake, Jake Bobo. Bobo. Will Disley. Like, I was like, okay, I do like this team. Gino? Like, yeah, I like Gino. Yeah. But like... It was one of those moments where I had to think. I had to think specifically of the players, and I do think it comes back to just... You want to talk about losing the public trust? Like, Jamal Adams has accelerated through a John Stanton decade of Mariners ownership in the last week. And I think we have to ask ourselves... I don't think he started at the beginning of John Stanton ownership coming into the past week, but yes, it has been... Is there a chance that this Jamal Adams trade was the worst trade in Seahawks history? I mean, on its own, I I think it would be you would be hard pressed to come up with a worse trade because they gave up two first round picks, one of which became Garrett Wilson. Garrett Wilson, Ugh. and then paid him a tremendous amount of money. I mean, they've given up one first round pick and play, paid players a tremendous amount of money a number but of those, times. But those those players paid, sometimes did good things. Percy Harvin returned a kickoff for a touchdown in the Super Bowl. I mean, I still think Jamal Adams probably on balance has had more, many more positive contributions to the Seahawks than Percy Harvin did, but it just it didn't affect every. Now, the reason that it's not the case is, of course, it ultimately led them to the Russell Wilson trade. <laughs> but that's not. It no longer looks like as slam dunk as uh, as much a slam dunk as it did this time a year ago. The Russell Wilson trade, even with no, Devin it's, it still was as much of a slam dunk because but I'm saying like they needed to the reset Jamal Adams the organization trade, trade. Like that was a good trade. The Jamal Adams trade being a good thing because it led to the Russell Wilson trade is is not as much of a yes. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I just can't imagine a trade that could have gone worse because Jamal Adams, both the the money 
and like, I don't want to hold him. It's not his fault that he's been injury prone, but like he has. And so he hasn't been on the field for a lot of games, the money that he's paid. And he just doesn't seem like that likable of a person. And so it's kind of like, what are the redeeming qualities here of Jamal Adams? And you have back-to-back weeks. You have the Cowboys game where the touchdown that lost them the game. Somebody it probably, if it wouldn't have been him, it probably would have been somebody else, but it was him that lost them the game. And he wasn't even competitive on the play. You know, that Ferguson scored. It was just, it was an easy touchdown for them. And then to follow that up the next week with another easy touchdown, specifically against Jamal Adams. And you're just like, what are we doing? How do you have the highest paid safeties in the league? You know, they've invested in this defense. Oh, but here's the good news. They restructured Jamal Adams' contract this year, meaning that they'll realize far less savings next year if they decide to release him. I... I would be shocked if Jamal Adams is on the team next year. I would I would be quite surprised by it as well. But again, this is something that was pretty foreseeable when the Seahawks decided to restructure his contract within the last 12 months. They're just, they they are, had to make money to make that trade. They're bad at this. Like, we've talked about that. This team, they are good at some things. And I think that they've actually they've drafted pretty well in the last couple of years. And the Russell Wilson trade ended up being kind of a slam dunk. They got a little lucky. But I think they, they saw that Russ was about to enter a new phase of his career. But they could he could have entered that new phase of his career, as he has this year, when the Broncos are an above 500 team. And instead, but, he did it in a but way. But where that, do the Broncos rank defensively? Because the CX have all those assets from the Russell Wilson trade and are still deeply bad. Oh, yeah. No, I so agree. Th- that's what I'm saying. This, is, is like, that's a, this has been my argument. He could he could have entered in that phase, and they could have the worst defense. Oh, I, oh, you, you're saying like if Russell? I'm not saying in the hypothetical Russell was. I'm saying the Broncos could have been a ten and seven team last year, and the Seahawks might have been oh, the twentieth pick instead of getting yes. the fifth. No, they, they got lucky because of that. Yeah, uh, but they they made the spoon pick, which was a great and right pick. Like Denver's still 30th in defensive team. Are they really? Yeah, it turns out when you give them 70 points in a game, (laughs) that really really hurts. I think their defense has gotten a lot better, though. I agree it's gotten a lot better. It's still ranked 30th. That's wild. Uh, But they're bad at this. When you look on the other side of the football, like Chase Young didn't have a ton of big plays in the game, but like Drew Locke was pressured quickly. And to see Christian McCaffrey that there was no first-round pick, the Seahawks traded, granted he's a running back, but like the Seahawks traded so much more for Jamal Adams than the Niners did for Christian McCaffrey. And if there is a second running back who matters, it does seem like it's Christian McCaffrey. Oh, yeah. I mean, particularly in that scheme, he has unlocked a lot of things. <sighs> so it it's just the Niners are way better at all of the shit than the Seahawks are. And that's why they're probably, I think they must be the favorite to win the Super Bowl right now. They are an enormous, I mean, not, Relative to the field, but relative to the second most team, they are an enormous favorite to win the Super Bowl. Right they now. look like the best team by far. Like I can't, I can't even summon hate for the Niners because they're just that good. Dallas, well, Dallas does have a very good point differential as well. But that game's going to be played in San Francisco. Most likely, they have the inside track towards home field advantage for the playoffs. But there is a third team in the NFC that is a a Super Bowl strong Super Bowl contender. Despite a poor point differential. I'm trying to think of the Lions? It is, according to the market, the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> Them? The team that played in the Super Bowl last year, who started 10-1, albeit not in the dominant fashion of last season's Super Bowl team, 
Seven of their 10 wins came by seven points or fewer, more than they had in all of 2022 when they had six of their 14 in the regular season, plus one win by eight points. And they have three fourth quarter comeback wins thus far. Before getting a reality check the last two weeks, much to Mateo's dismay, losing by a combined 43 points at home to San Francisco and at Dallas, more than the Seahawks on the road against both of those same two foes the opposite weeks when they lost by a combined 22 points. If you break it down, the Eagles' offense is still quite good. They're eighth in DVOA, but their defense has dropped from third to 20th despite the addition of Tristan Favorite and the presumptive defensive rookie of the year, Jalen so Carter. Dumb. And former Seahawks assistant. He had a assistant. return touchdown this week, too. I'm well aware. God. Definitely capped that defensive rookie of the year. And former Seahawks assistant Sean Desai replacing Jonathan Gannon as defensive coordinator. If you look at it in terms of EPA per play, they're actually much worse. Than, they're a little worse than the Seahawks, but they have played a brutal schedule. They've faced, faced each of the top four DVOA offenses, two games against the number six Cowboys, and have played only one game against a bottom nine offense by DVOA, albeit that was the worst team. And they lost. The New York Jets. I mean, the opponent adjustments don't necessarily care whether you won or lost. I know, but just still, like... Uh, they're almost equally bad against both the run and the pass in EPA, 29th against the pass and 28th against the run. It's a little weird because when you look at their... Their pass defense statistics, for the most part, they're middle of the pack, but uh, they have intercepted just six passes, which is the league's second lowest rate after averaging one per game. I was going to say, season. were they high on turnover luck last year? Ranked fifth. Wow. Shocking. That doesn't carry over, huh? They have also dropped from number one in sack rate to below average this season. Hassan Reddick still has 11. Josh Schwett has six and a half, but nobody else has more than four sacks, whereas last season they had four players reach double figures plus seven from Fletcher Cox. From that group, they lost Jason Hargrave to the Niners, where he is still very good. And Brandon Graham, at age 35, has aged out of elite pass rushing. But they are probably somewhat unlucky this year in terms of sack rate as their pressure and hurry percentages have remained solidly above average. The other interesting thing about the Eagles' defense, they have faced the most passes in the NFL and the second fewest rushes. And even though they've got a 10-3 record, it's not really a product of game script because they've come from behind so much. It's mostly because of the fact that teams would much rather pass against the Eagles in their secondary than run on early downs against their defensive front, led by multiple former Georgia players. <laughs> so I mentioned they were not good overall in EPA against the run. Yeah. Very odd splits here. This also carries over in passes. On early downs, they are in the top 10 defending the run. On third and fourth down, they have allowed an 80% opponent success rate. And it's particularly, they've been poor against short yardage rushing situations, which is strange because you'd think Jonathan Davis would excel in that situation. Uh-huh. So I don't know quite what to make of that. They're also, like their pass defense, pretty good on first and second down. One of the second worst in the league on third and fourth down. Offensively, they're still in the top 10 in both run and pass offense EPA per play. Jalen Hurts and Jordan Davis, right? Jordan, yes. I was like, the lead singer of corn? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Jalen Hurts' season, not so different from last year with one important difference. He's already thrown 10 picks up from six last season when his interception rate was fifth lowest in the NFL. That was quite lucky, but his current below average interception rate is probably a little unlucky when you look at his turnover-worthy plays as charted by Pro Football Focus. 
A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith both catch you about 70% of their targets for about 9.5 yards per target. They're outstanding. They got Dallas Goddard back last week, giving them a third receiving threat. Targets for running backs have been highly inefficient, yielding 4.6 yards per target under a 50% success rate. The other thing we have to talk about with the Eagles offense, obviously, is the brotherly shove. Hertz is 19 of 20, converting third and fourth down in one rushes, according to stathead.com. Josh Allen has been the most effective player in those situations at 12 of 12. And third, in a truly shocking result to Seahawks fans, Russell Wilson is 13 of awesome. 14. I feel like he's like a differently built Russell Wilson now. I mean, that's definitely true. But he learned how to sneak like his last season in Seattle, I think. And we never really reaped the benefit of it because he was injured that year. So basically what you're telling me, there's a little bit of a rock hard play situation for the Seahawks on third downs and the Eagles on third downs as well. I uh, was going to say it's the stoppable force versus the movable object is the Seahawks dreadful third down offense versus the Eagles dreadful third down defense. But the reality here is the, this is not a good Eagles defense overall. And there are two teams that similar, I mean, I mean, the Cowboys defense actually is great, but Seahawks offense ultimately has been playing quite well these last couple of weeks. Yep. And there are two teams that both have pretty bad defenses and very, I wouldn't say very good offenses, especially if Geno is back and the Seahawks are at 100% health. This could be a bit of a shootout in Seattle on Monday night. Yeah. Uh, and I think an important thing here is how they approach it philosophically, because if they come in again committed to, we got to establish the run here against this team that teams have run against the second fewest in the entire NFL, they may struggle. But if they come out attacking with early down passes, I think they have a chance to be very successful on offense against this team. I mean, that it'll be fascinating to see. I think Geno being healthy is going to be a huge differentiator for that. Like I mean, they, but they, they were aggressive with Drew Locke on early down passes a lot of Sunday. At some points of the game. Like the first drive in particular. When they needed to, they were. Right. But when there was... When they convinced themselves that they that they were in a field position game as opposed this to is one what where they're they, giving up 10 yards per play? When, when they can, yeah, when, when they think that they are in... Pete Carroll wants to run the ball. Make no mistake. Pete Carroll is still Pete Carroll inside of there. But when they feel like they have to pass and throw on early downs and use the motion offense, they're very good, right? I mean, you saw that touchdown and how quickly they scored it uh, in the third quarter. But... It's just something that they need to force themselves to do. It all is always involved Noah Fant, who is number one on the team in yards per target this season. Oh, Noah Fant's awesome. But another free agent. I think that could be a benefit of Philadelphia scoring. <laughs> and and if Philadelphia is going to, you know, push them on this and make them play the good offense, the Seahawks have it in them, right? The Cowboys did that to them. They have to approach this game as A, they need to win this game no matter what. Whatever happens, the Seahawks, and I think they know this. This is a every game is a must-win game, but this one is the most must-win, partially just because it's the next on the schedule. But yeah, I don't like, know if it's the most must-win, but it's the one that would change their odds the most. And the one good thing that happened for them is both Green Bay and the Rams losing this weekend meant that their playoff odds did not drop nearly as much as they could have. If they end up with a five-game losing streak, though things are going to look pretty bleak for this team. I mean, it is a classic Pelton cast golden rule. Like coming into this year, you would have said Pete Carroll, his job security is near the top of the NFL, but things look a lot different when you lose four games in a row. We also saw this, this 
part of the schedule. We knew it was there. The issue wasn't the loss to the Cowboys. The issue wasn't the two losses to the Niners. It was the loss to the Rams. And that's what really is changing their whole situation playoff odds-wise. Yeah, and so, also they got to play the Bengals with their less good quarterback. And I didn't know. take advantage of yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. <laughs> uh, but I think they're going to do whatever needs to be done to try to win this game. And if they are capable of knowing what that means, then I think that the Seahawks will have a very good chance of winning. If what they think is happening here is that they're going to be in a grinded out, close, like we're just going to be punting back and forth to each other. If they think this is Iowa football, then they're going to lose. If they are not aggressive on fourth downs, I don't think the Pete that punted on the fourth down in the second quarter against the Niners is the same Pete who went for it against the Cowboys a few times. I think Pete Carroll thought that the Cowboys game was a different game than that Niners game was, but he didn't realize it was literally the worst defensive performance in Seahawks history. So I, if they are able to approach this Eagles game as basically like everything needs to be thrown at it, they need to do whatever they can to win it. They have to be aggressive going for fourth downs. They have to be aggressive passing early. They have to be aggressive with motion. I think the Seahawks will win this game, but if they approach it as they're going to be punting from midfield on a fourth and two, then it's fucking over. The whole season's over. Percentage chances of victory? I actually think they are better than 50%. Oh, you're stealing my thunder here. Am I? I was going to give it a wrong team favorite. I, I think it's like a 56% chance. I mean, I'm still like 53, 54. The Seahawks are one in four in their last five home night games since 2021, but three of those four losses came to other West Coast teams. Two against the 49ers the last two years, one against the Rams, against teams traveling at least two time zones. In the Pete Carroll era, according to stathead.com, they are 17 and 2. <laughs> Overall in franchise history, they are 23 and 6. Including a win against the Super Bowl winning Eagles on a Monday night game against uh, Carson Wentz. So, well, again, they got to play the less good quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> That year, they beat Carson Wentz and Patrick Mahomes. Oh, they almost gave that guy an MVP. Maybe not really that close, but... Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a huge advantage for them. It's a little surprising the market isn't reacting more to that, although maybe the Seahawks have been bad enough that that is their reaction to move it up to a four-point line. I actually believe in the Seahawks offense, and I think the Seahawks offense will move the ball against the Eagles in this one, and I think the defense will do just enough. They like Pete Carroll... They've kind of fixed the offense two weeks ago. Pete Carroll, he kind of did what he said he was going to do. I agree. And I don't know if they are capable of fixing the defense, if this defense can be fixed because the scheme is so off. But clearly they're spending a lot of time on it. <laughs> and they are thinking a lot about it. And I think it is going to be very clear to the players uh, as far as if, if, if there's a reality to what they are saying, that they understood the scheme and how it worked, and they had coached the players into a position that they just need to execute. If it was ever going to happen, it'll be this week against the, against the Eagles. So it's now or never on that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.